Well, if you were here um, with us a few, for the last few Sundays, you'll know that we have begun a, a study, a new study, through the book of Ephesians. Uh, today, we happen to find ourselves in verse, chapter 1, verses 7 to 12. And as you know, last week we began in verse 3, looking at the body of Paul's letter. The body of his letter began, began in verse 3. The greeting was verses 1 and 2 before that time. And what we saw last week when we looked into the body of Paul's letter is simply that Paul doesn't waste too much time before getting to the nitty-gritty of what it is that he wants to talk about. He wants to communicate to us the wonderful riches that we have in Christ Jesus, and he does this in laying out the wonderful plan of salvation which God has made available to us as believers. In fact, as we pointed out last week, Verses 3 right down to verse 14, they are actually one long sentence in the original language. It is one long literary unit where we see Paul carefully crafting out somewhat of a heartfelt expression to God for the wonders and his graciousness in bringing about his plan of salvation. In verses 3 to 14, Paul really wants to illustrate the way that the salvation that God has made available to us is complete, that it's without any weak or any missing links in it. And what's more, Paul wants to demonstrate how our salvation really combines the, the work, of the combined work of the Trinity, of the Godhead, of the, the triune God. He wants to demonstrate for us here in verses 3 to 14 how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together in order to accomplish the salvation of which we today are beneficiaries of. Now last Sunday, verses 3 to 6, we started by looking at where Paul explains to us the role of God the Father in our salvation. That's where we started with last week, the role of God the Father. And what we saw is that our salvation as believers, it has been purposed by the Father. That even before the beginning of time as we know it, even before human history, our salvation was planned, it was purposed, having been elected, chosen, predestined by God for this very purpose. Which really is a reminder to us that although our salvation may have come as a surprise to our friends, although our salvation may have come as a surprise to maybe our family members, maybe even it came as a surprise to ourselves, well... What we do know is that it did not come as a surprise to God. Our salvation was not an afterthought to God. But instead, as we saw last week, even before the foundation of the world, God the Father purposed that we would be chosen by God for salvation, for the purpose of sanctification, and for the purpose of sonship, all to the praise of the glory of His grace. Well, that brings us right up to today's passage. And in today's passage, well, we move from the role of God the Father in our salvation to now God the Son. What is the role of God the Son? What is the role of the second person of the Godhead who we know is Jesus? Well, in verses 3 to 6, Paul explained that we've been purposed by the Father, whereas verses 7 to 12, Paul explains that we have been purchased by the Son. First, purposed by the Father. Secondly, now, purchased by the Son. In verses 3 to 6, 
Paul explains God's plan of salvation, whereas today in verses 7 to 12, Paul explains God's provision for our salvation, the provision uh, in order to accomplish the plan which God had purposed, which directs our focus to what? It directs our focus to the work of Jesus, the work of the second person of the Trinity. More specifically, Paul directs our thoughts to the work of Jesus upon the cross. What Paul explains to us in verses 7 to 12 is that the way that Jesus has purchased that which the Father has purposed. Now, we can track along with Paul's line of thinking in verses 7 to 12, and we can do so by really dividing the passage into the three main parts. This is going to form our outline for our study here today. Uh, Firstly, we're going to see in in verse 7 that Jesus purchased our redemption, that through the cross we have been freed from both the penalty and also the power of sin. He purchased our redemption. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus purchased our enlightenment, verses 8 to 10, that through the cross we are given insight, given spiritual wisdom into God's redemptive plan. And, and finally, verses 11 and 12, well, we're going to see that Jesus purchased our inheritance. That through the cross, we are given an eternal inheritance for the future, but also we are an eternal inheritance in the future. And so let's begin, first of all, giving our attention now to verse 7 in our Bibles, where Paul explains how Jesus has purchased our redemption. Notice how he puts it there in your Bibles, beginning in verse 7. He says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now, the first thing that is helpful for us to point out here is the noticeable shift in the tenses which Paul uses here. In verses 3 to 6, Paul describes God's past actions, his past actions, his past electing gracious actions, which have brought about abundant blessing for us as believers. Whereas in verses 7 to 10, well, Paul now shifts to the present tense. He shifts from talking about what God the Father has done in the past, purposing us in the past. He now shifts to the present tense, which is clearly seen in verse 7 by him saying, in him we have. This is something which is present. This is something which is ours right here, right now. He's talking about something that we get to experience in the present. In other words, Paul wants us to, to, to stress, he wants to stress in this verse the present experience of redemption, the present experience of forgiveness that we as believers get to enjoy through that relationship with the Lord Jesus. He starts in verse 7 by saying what? In him we have presently, present tense, redemption. Now, of course, this immediate immediate question that probably should come to mind for us is, well, what are we talking about here? What does it mean that we have redemption? What is redemption? what, What idea does this word redemption carry with it when it says, in him we have redemption? Well, what is redemption? Well, one thing I can tell you is that he's not just talking about the name of our church. 
We're talking about Redemption Church. However, I suppose technically you could kind of say, well, in a way, Redemption Church has been made possible by Christ. So technically you could say, yes, that's, that's it. But that is not the central idea on the mind of the Apostle Paul in this part of his letter. Not talking about the name of our church. But instead, the word redemption, it's used in Scripture in the New Testament as a metaphor. It's used as a metaphor to describe the work of Jesus, which he has accomplished through the cross. Now, it's probably helpful for us to note that the concept of redemption, it was very well known in Paul's day. The, the concept of redemption was primarily related to what took place within the slave market in that day, in the day in which Paul was writing. You see, in New Testament times, the Roman Empire had as many as 20 million plus slaves. Those who were used and who were um, uh, taken as possessions, bought by others to be used to fulfill the purpose of their master. Needless to say, the the buying and the selling of slaves, the buying and the selling of slaves, there was over 20 million, some people even say as many as 60 million, somewhere maybe 20 to 60 million slaves. Needless to say, the, the buying and selling of slaves was a very big business. It was a very big market. Men and women were bought, sold, traded as though they were possessions, as though they were like a a piece of furniture, something you put on marketplace, on trade me, something like that, just something that you can can buy and sell. But every once in a while, a person would purchase a slave, and they would purchase that slave not for the purpose of having them as their own slave, but they would purchase them for the the purpose of securing their freedom, of setting that slave free. When would this sort of instance take place? Who would pay good money to get a position just to to give it away? You know, let let that position go? Well, if you had a good friend who was a slave, or if you had a family member, a mother, a father, a brother, sister perhaps, who happened to be a slave, and if over a period of time you came into the means financially to be able to help them, to be able to free them from slavery, well, this is the kind of the motivation of what would have taken place. But you see, if you did come, into the, come around and, you know, if you felt, hey, I have the financial ability to help free a, a family member or a loved one of some sort, you couldn't just go to the master of that, you know, of that, that slave, of your friend or family member. You couldn't just go to the master, master and say, hey, would you mind letting them go? Would you just let them come home with me? I mean, that would be like asking someone, hey, do you mind just giving me your house, you know, giving me your car? And so because there was some kind of commercial um, value associated with a slave, in order for a slave to be freed, someone would have to, was required to pay that required price. If you wanted to free a slave, if you, you had to pay the required price in order for this to happen. And this particular transaction... This particular transaction, the payment of the required price, buying a slave for the purpose of setting them free, it was this particular act that was known as redemption. It was freeing one one person from the bond or the bondage of slavery. Now, it doesn't take too much. You don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed don't have to be the brightest spark to try to work out and to try to figure out why New Testament writers would take this 
this common understanding of redemption and apply it to the work of the Lord Jesus, which he accomplished upon the cross. After all, the Bible speaks of all mankind being spiritually enslaved, doesn't it? Scripture teaches us that every single human being has be, that has been born right from the, the fall of man, right from the, the time of Adam and Eve, every single human being born from the time of the fall has come into the world enslaved to sin. Every single human being is born into this world being under total bondage to their nature, which is corrupt, evil, separated from its creator. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul points out that spiritual slavery of mankind is universal. It's, it's something which is, which is inherited, which is part of the human condition, where he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. It's universal slavery, bondage, spiritually speaking. And then Romans chapter 7, verse 14, Paul speaks of sin being our captor, and he speaks of it in this way. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You see the kind of wording that's being used there? Slave, sold, under what? Sin. And so here's the bottom line. <clears throat> when it comes to the metaphor of redemption and the way in which it relates to the Christian, according to Scripture, sin is man's captor. According to Scripture, sin is, you might want to call it, the slave owner of mankind, the one who keeps us captive, the one who keeps us in bondage, the one who has rightful ownership of us. And what's more, in order for a person to be freed from the captor of sin, the required price must first be paid in order for that release to take place. And as we know, what is the, what is the price? What is the price? In order to free a person in this sense, spiritually speaking, from sin, from their captor of sin, well, death is the price that must first be paid for, the, for, the, for man's redemption under sin. That brings us to the subject matter of what was accomplished through the death of Jesus upon the cross. We can put it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, he was paying the required price in order to set us free from our captor. When he died on the cross, he was, setting, he was paying the price to set us free from the slave owner of sin. While we were captive to sin, while we were bond, in bondage or slavery under sin, there was no basis, no basis whatsoever for us to have relationship with God. That was our place. We were a slave to sin. But as we know, through the sacrifice upon the cross, Jesus what? Jesus voluntarily gave his life as the required payment, releasing us, freeing us from slavery under sin. This is what is meant in verse 7 in today's passage, where Paul says, in him we have redemption, and notice the means, through his blood. That was the required price. Through his blood. That was the required price for our redemption. That was the required price for our freedom. 
That was a required price for relationship with God. And as Paul says in verse 7 there, that was the required price for the forgiveness of our sins. Paul speaks of this freedom. He speaks of the freedom which Christ has made available to those who he has come to save. And he does so, he talks about the freedom in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And he speaks about it in this way. He says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Then we look over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. We're seeing redemption. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, we see similar language as well. He says, stand therefore in the liberty, that is, the freedom. One who has been freed, one who has been freed from their captor. Stand fast in the, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. That is the yoke of slavery. Now, as you might expect, we find the word redemption, or the concept of redemption, being used relatively frequently within the New Testament. Because what this concept of redemption does, as it's probably doing in your own mind and reminding us in our own thinking right now, what this concept of redemption does is that it gives us a very vivid picture of what was accomplished through the sacrificial death of Jesus. In fact, there are three distinct words, and, and there are different offshoots of those words and different variations of those words, but there are, there are three main distinct words that are either translated as the word redemption or a derivative of um, in our English translations, or they speak of a, a word to that effect. Really, the, the first word that speaks of redemption there's three main ones, there are three root words. The first word that speaks of a redemption, agorazo, A-G-O-R-A-Z-O. What does that mean? Well, it means to go into a market and to buy or to purchase something. I'm going into a market and I'm buying and purchasing something. And, and what happens when we go into a market, when we go into a store, and when we go and we purchase something, when we buy something? Well, we know what takes place, isn't it? You know, we, all of us are familiar with that. We go into a store, we hand over money, we swipe the FBOS card, we swipe the credit card perhaps, and what happens? Well, ownership of that position, it immediately becomes ours. Ownership of that position is immediately transferred to us. We are now the owner of that position, whatever that position might be. Well, in a similar way, through the sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross, he bought us. He purchased us. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus, he paid the required price to make us his own. Which means for us as believers, what? As believers, it tells us that we belong to him. We are his possession. Uh, listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, um, where he uses this same particular Greek word, which is translated as bought in the New King James Version. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, you have, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price, 
Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It speaks of what? It speaks of ownership. Sin was once our master. Death was once our master. But Christ paid the required price so that our ownership has been transferred to another. He paid the required price so that our ownership has now been transferred to God. This is the first word that is used that gives somewhat of a concept of redemption. We have been bought. Possession has been transferred. But there is a second Greek word in the New Testament used for the idea, or specifically for the word redemption. It's called lytro. L-Y-T-R-O-O. What does that word mean? It means to release. It means to liberate. And to release or to liberate on receipt of a payment, on the receipt of receiving a a ransom. It is the same uh, word that same, almost the same as the first word that we've just looked at, almost the same, but it has an additional prefix. And that additional prefix to that word means out of. In other words, the first word that we looked at means to buy, you make a purchase within the marketplace. That's really what the word means. So, you know, you're bought, you make a purchase within the marketplace. But the second word, like true, it means to buy out of the marketplace. First word, bought in the marketplace. Second word means to to buy out of the marketplace. It has the idea of buying something out of the marketplace so that it is never put up for sale again. It is like a lover of art, let's say, and they go and they purchase a painting from an auction. And this person loves the painting so much and thinks, you know, I want to make sure that everyone gets to enjoy I want to make sure that, that, that nothing happens to this. And so what the person does who buys that painting is that he donates the painting to a museum. And he says, here, this is yours for life, so that it can never enter into the marketplace. It can never be resold again. It has been purchased so that it will never return back to the market. In a similar way, This is the idea of the second Greek word. In a Christian sense, it has to do with the permanent nature of redemption. Once Jesus purchases the believer out of the slave market of sin, they will never return back there again. Notice the way that Peter uses the second Greek word in the New Testament for redemption. One place is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And this is what he says. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed, there's the word, with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. The word is also used in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. And it's where... Um, He says, picking up in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And so when we consider, when we consider the great price that was paid for our redemption, I mean, what does Peter put it there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19? 
you know. Our redemption wasn't brought about by corruptible things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. When we consider the great price that was paid for our redemption, we can understand why we will never enter into that same marketplace of sin again. Because think about it. Who can outbid what it is that Christ has paid? Who can pay a price that is greater than what Jesus gave when he gave himself upon the cross? If you want to try to take his possession from him, you better offer something greater than what it is that he has already paid. And as we know, sin and death has no, has no match for the, for the sacrifice and the payment that Christ gave and made for us. And so that is the second word, to buy out of the marketplace. But then there's a third Greek word. And this third Greek word is the word for redemption that our passage today actually happens to use. We're talking about verse 7. And this third Greek word, it means, it literally means to be loosed away. It is the Greek word is spelled A-P-O-L-Y-T-R-O-I-S-I-S. It literally means to be loosed away from something. Once bound, now loosed, let go. And so we ask the question, what specifically has the blood of Christ loosed us from? Well, I think when we look to see what Paul says in verse 7, I think the connection is quite clear. For the payment which Christ has made for us through his death, we have been loosed. We have been released from the guilt and the consequences of sin that once held over our head. We see this, uh, we see this in the way that Paul makes the connection, verse 7, between redemption and forgiveness. We have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we have been loosened of. That's what we've been liberated, released from. Paul makes the same connection in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He makes the same um, connection where the same Greek word for redemption is used once again. That connection between being loosed from what? Being loosed from the, 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 the bondage and the power that, and the guilt and the consequence that sin once held over us. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that he, Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into, into, the, into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but isn't redemption a tremendous, tremendous reality for the believer? In him we have presently. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of the sins according to his grace. I mean, think about it. <clears throat> Imagine that you're a slave back in that day. Imagine that your owner puts you up for sale. I mean, you have no idea what it is that your future is going to hold. You don't know what's going to happen to you. All you know is that the one who purchases you is the one who now holds your future in their hands. The offer is made. The highest bidder wins. And what happens? Well, you discover that the one who has purchased you has purchased you for the purpose of setting you free. 
And by the way, it's not a friend, not a family member, but it is one who would be considered the relationship of an enemy, dead in our trespasses and sins, enemies of God. So picture for a moment the person who, 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 who places the winning bid for you. You find out that he has purchased you and he's purchased you for the purpose of setting you free. And once more, you find out that the required price for your freedom was just not a whole lot of money, a whole lot of gold or silver, but you found out that the one whom beforehand your relationship was that of an enemy, that the person you had offended, the person that, you had, that, that there, was, there was conflict in between, you found out the price for your freedom was the life of that master. My friends, this is the amazing, tremendous, gracious, majestic gift that we have been given. This is the tremendous, majestic gift that redemption is. Because through redemption, we now belong to God. Through redemption, we are freed from sin and death in such a way that we will never go under and be put under that bondage once again. Through redemption, any guilt which once hung over us has now been loosed. Forgiveness of sins. However, what are we reminded of here? We're reminded by the concept of redemption that this freedom of ours came at a cost. It came at an incredibly high cost. In fact, it came at the greatest cost that could ever be paid. Yet it was a price which Jesus wasn't forced to pay, compelled to pay, but instead it's a, it's a cost, a price that Jesus willingly and voluntarily paid when he laid down his life for us. What did Jesus say? He said, no man takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. And this is what our Redeemer did. He willingly laid down his life for us. Well, in addition to Jesus purchasing our redemption, verse 7, we see next in verses ten to uh, 8 to 10, Jesus has also purchased our enlightenment. What does that mean? Well, it means that through the cross, we are given insight into God's redemptive plan. Notice it there in your Bibles, picking up in verse 8, where he says, which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Do we see what he's saying here? Simply put, another thing which the death of Christ accomplished is that it brought us into knowledge, it brought us into awareness of the Father's divine plan for mankind. Or as Paul puts it there in verse 9, through Christ, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, we're going to see throughout this letter of Ephesians that it has a lot to say about God's plan for his people. But as we see here, is that before this point, which Paul is talking about here, before this point in time in history, God's plan, it was somewhat of a mystery. 
It's not to say that God's plan for mankind was beyond knowing. It's not saying that it was beyond human understanding or beyond human comprehension. It was just too lofty, too high. That's not what it means by mystery. Nor was it a mystery in the sense that it was some kind of riddle. You know, you had to work through and get through lots of layers of complexity in order to try to understand the hidden meaning behind something. That is not what he's talking about mystery either. But instead, when he says that his plan was a mystery, once a mystery, it means that it was once something that was hidden. Not beyond knowing, not beyond comprehension, not layers to get through like a riddle, but instead it was something that was hidden. In other words, what the Father had planned from the very beginning concerning our salvation was not a plan that had been revealed in its totality in Old Testament times. In other words, if you were to go through and if all we had was the Old Testament, well, we wouldn't come to a complete conclusion of how God is going to accomplish our redemption. We wouldn't come to a complete conclusion concerning the the fullness of that redemption and what that redemption would have involved. Yes, we have principles that are present in the Old Testament, principles that said this is what it's going to include, but the specifics were not. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret before the world began. It was once hidden. It was not revealed in the same kind of way. But, but what is Paul telling us in verses 8 and 9 of today's passage? Well, he's telling us that through Christ, God has given to us wisdom, spiritual wisdom, enlightened wisdom, to understand his plan for mankind through the cross of Jesus. Although the reality and the extent of the cross was somewhat of a a mystery beforehand, what God has done to the believer is that he has now graciously revealed his plan to us. And what is that plan? One word, restoration. Restoration, that is his plan. Or as Paul puts it there in verse 10, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. You see, ever since sin entered into the world, things have been falling apart. Things have been scattered. Things are just dropping off left, right, and center. It all started when mankind became separated from God in the Garden of Eden. And by the way, things have been getting progressively worse since that time. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, where he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. We all know that something is out of kilter. We all know that this is not plan A in which we are living in right now. But you see, what Paul reminds us of in today's passage, he reminds us that it's not always going to be this way. He reminds us that the paradise which was lost in Adam will one day be restored in Christ. Although the creation order as we know it right now is broken at this time, We look around the world, it is broken. This is not the millennial age. 
We live in a broken place right now. We know that one day things will be turned around. Things will return to how God originally intended for them to be. And in case you're wondering what that actually looks like, what does it look like when, when, when God turns things around, when he mends the brokenness of the creation which we now live in? In case we're wondering what that will look like, well, Paul tells us what that will look like, and it really matches and it expands what it is that Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1. He puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is what it will look like. He's speaking of Jesus, Paul says in verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, this is the redemptive plan of God. That the creation order will one day come under and one day recognize the authority of Christ to the glory of God the Father. And what's more, as believers, we are currently part of that, you might want to call it, in a circle. We are, that's what Paul's telling us here. That God has made known to us, you know, wisdom with all wisdom and prudence, the things of his will. As believers, we are currently part of God's inner circle. God has changed our hearts in such a way that he has made known to us the truth that was once hidden. He's changed our hearts and changed our minds in such a way that we can now know the truth that was once hidden, the truth that was once a mystery that God will one day reunite and restore things to how he originally intended. But in the meantime, what is some of the application for us? I'm sure the application is quite clear for us to see. There are many, many people around us to whom the cross of Christ is still a mystery. Not a mystery to the believer. God has given us all wisdom and prudence. That means understanding. He ha he's enabled us to understand his redemptive plan, bringing all things under the authority of Christ to the glory of God the Father. But today there are many, many people in our lives, people around us to whom the cross of Christ is somewhat of a mystery. So what is our job? Our job is similar to Paul, to help to reveal to them the mystery that by God's grace, to help them to understand that which is currently hidden to their thinking, that which is currently hidden to their understanding. We have to understand that to the, to the unregenerate, to the unbeliever, it is a mystery of what God is doing. But to us, he has brought us in. He has enlightened us. He has given us spiritual understanding by the Spirit of God so that we can th understand things of the spirit, things of the spiritual nature. Well, not only has Jesus purchased our redemption, number one, purchased our enlightenment, number two, we see finally that he has purchased our inheritance, verses 11 and 12, that through the cross we are given an eternal hope for the future. Notice how he puts it there, beginning of verse 11. He says, In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of the, 
glory, of his glory. Simply put, the cross, well, through the cross of Jesus, through the cross of Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. There is something beyond the here and now which Christ, through his sacrificial death, has accomplished for us. In fact, notice that Paul says that we have been predestined for this inheritance. In other words, the inheritance that God has for us is what? It's not an afterthought on God's part. But instead, even before time began, God purposed that we would be heirs. Heirs to an inheritance. And in case you're wondering exactly what this inheritance is, there's no guesswork that's needed. We only need to cross-reference to where the inheritance is expanded a little bit more. That's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. It's where Peter explains the inheritance that awaits us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. Now, while it is true that as believers we will obtain, receive an inheritance from God, it's also important for us to recognize that as believers we were made an inheritance for God. Not only will we obtain an inheritance from God, but we will also we were also made in an inheritance for God. Now, what causes me to say this? Well, <clears throat> Bible commentators are divided on what it is that verse 11 is actually speaking about here. They're divided on, on what it is that the original language would, would say concerning what Paul is wanting to communicate in verse 11. In verse 11, where our New King James Version says, we have obtained an inheritance, it can also rightly be translated this way that we were made an inheritance. Meaning that, as believers, we are actually God's inheritance. As believers, we were the ones which were purchased as a possession for God. Sure enough, when we look to the Gospels, we see, and other places in Scripture, but when we look to the Gospels, we see that Jesus repeatedly spoke of believers as being gifts, as an inheritance, given from the Father to the Son. For instance, in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will by no means, cast, by no means be cast out. It's inheritance. It's something which the Father is giving to the Son. In John chapter 6, and verse 39, just a couple of verses under that, he says, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. What is it talking about? It's saying that the Father has planned somewhat of an, an inheritance of souls, of people, of, conver of converted beings. In John chapter 10, verse 29, we see similar language. My Father, who has given them to me, there's somewhat of an inheritance for him, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
an inheritance is taking place. And then if you look in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, just look down to verse 18 there in your Bibles, where Paul is praying for spiritual wisdom for believers. Notice in verse 18 that it speaks about God's inheritance, not for the saints, but what does it say there? His inheritance in the saints. In other words, from eternity past, the Father planned, the Father determined every person who would trust in His Son for salvation and that they would be given to His Son as a possession and as a glorious inheritance. And this is possibly what Paul is wanting to elaborate on if you look in the rest of verse 12 there, where he says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so we can kind of see how that translation would fit in quite nicely there as well. That, that, that we who first trust in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Not, not only what he has done, but, but, but what he has done in us. What he is saying is that those who are purchased by the sons, they will be objects of glory for God. In other words, when we are one day in heaven, we as believers will be seen as what? One day in heaven, one day when we're in heaven, we'll be seen as trophies of God's grace for all eternity. When the angels look in on us, they will praise God for all eternity, for how gracious God is, how loving God is. And in that sense, we are God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance that will bring much glory to him both now and in the time to come. This is how he's chosen, one of the ways that he's chosen to glorify himself. He could have chosen any way to bring eternal glory to himself, but one of the ways that he's chosen to bring glory to himself is by saving lost sinners to himself. We are his inheritance. Whichever take you want on it in verse 11, whether it is believers obtaining an inheritance, whether it's believers being their inheritance, either way, either view can be supported elsewhere in Scripture. And so either way, these are tremendous truths for us as believers to be reminded of, tremendous truths for us to give God thanks for. Aren't they? Aren't these truths to give God thanks for? Aren't we, aren't we reading through these truths and is there not thankfulness that is coming up and arousing within our hearts? When we remind ourselves of our redemption, of our enlightenment, meaning spiritual wisdom given by God, spiritual understanding, when we're reminded of inheritance and that these were only made possible because the price that Jesus paid, aren't we so incredibly grateful that we have been purchased by the Son, redeemed by the Son? Aren't we incredibly grateful that Jesus has purchased that which the Father has purposed? Well, that really brings today our study to a close. Next Sunday, we'll be moving from the second person of the Trinity to now the role of the third person in the Trinity. We've already seen that our salvation has been purposed by the Father, that it has been purchased by the Son. Next week, we get to verses 13 and 14, we're going to see that our salvation is being preserved, 
kept by the Holy Spirit. And so it's with this in mind, let's just close now with a word of prayer and let's just respond to God for what he has done through Christ in purchasing us. So let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your role in our salvation. We recognize that without you, there is no way that our salvation would have been made possible. Without you, we would have remained under the control of our captor. We would have remained under the control of the slave master of sin. But Lord, as you looked upon our our hopeless state, when you looked upon our helpless state, as you looked upon us who were enslaved under the bondage of sin, you graciously paid the required price. You paid it so that we can be freed from that which once kept us and held us captive. And Lord, in doing so, you have given to us wisdom. You've given to us understanding of your plan for mankind. That you'll one day gather all things that will recognize and will live under your divine authority. Lord, through your sacrificial death for us, you have opened the gateway for our future inheritance in heaven. We will, we will be both given, a, given an inheritance and we, are, we will also be that inheritance to the praise of your glory. But in the meantime, please help us to be mindful of how it is that we should be living in the here and the now. Help us to remember that we are not our own, but that we've been bought at a price. And therefore we would spend the rest of our time here on earth seeking to bring glory to your name. Help us with these things, we pray in your precious name. Amen.